The announcement by North Korea of a nuclear test has drawn condemnation from across the globe and raises the spectre of a diplomatic crisis in the Far East with possible disastrous consequences. I'm joined today by Associate Professors Chris Hughes of Warwick Centre for the Study of Globalisation and Regionalisation and Dan Joyner from the School of Law. Chris, North Korea's announcement has rocked the UN, rocked uh, many governments around the world. How have we reached a position where they're able to do this? Well, it's a, the whole North Korean nuclear uh, crisis, or in fact we've had two crises, uh, is a very long story which really dates back to the the end of the of the Cold War uh, and North Korea's sense of isolation uh, and desperation uh, with the failure of its own economy, its abandonment by the Soviet Union uh, and by China as a key ally in the Cold War struggle. This then launched North Korea on a trajectory of thinking about how to uh, engage with the outside world on its own terms. Uh, and most observers would, would agree that the tool which North Korea has used in order to do this is uh, its military assets, in particular uh, its nuclear program. So uh, North Korea uh, first was thought to have embarked on a nuclear program in the early 1990s uh, and indicated to the international community by uh, suspending its membership of the Non-Proliferation Treaty uh, that it was uh, engaged in uh, this program uh, and used this, uh, what some people would call nuclear brinkmanship, in the first North Korean nuclear crisis which came to a head uh, in the summer of 1994 to try and exert leverage on its regional neighbours and in particular on the United States uh, to try and coax the international community into giving it concessions uh, and into talks. Now in 1994 the situation got pretty bad. Um, There was talk about the United States possibly launching uh, uh, airstrikes on North Korea's nuclear facilities uh, and eventually that was averted by the visit of ex-president Jimmy Carter to Pyongyang uh, in June 1994. Uh, and then the United States decided that it would uh, engage the North Koreans in a series of nuclear talks. And this resulted uh, in the end of 1994 in what's known as the agreed framework between the United States and North Korea, where North Korea agreed to basically put its North, its nuclear program under wraps, not to abandon it, but to put it under wraps uh, for an agreement at a future date to dismantle this program in return for certain concessions from the United States, uh, particularly a negative security guarantee saying that the United States would not attack uh, North Korea. Also for longer term promise of the United States providing diplomatic recognition uh, to the North Koreans uh, and a series of of short term uh, concessions on on energy. So the United States agreed to provide uh, uh, North Korea with heavy fuel oil to to meet some of its energy needs and eventually to construct two light water reactors uh, in North Korea which are uh, can produce only a type of plutonium which is not very good for making nuclear weapons. So what went wrong? Why why have we gone from a situation where things seem to be working themselves out to one where we're now right. in this position of diplomatic crisis? Well, this is a problem. In 1990, from 1994-1995 onwards, it looked like we may have be, at least have a process and on the road to some kind of resolution uh, of the nuclear crisis. But... Uh, things started to go wrong relatively early. Many people would argue that the, the problem really, arra- really arose with the fact that the agreed framework, which was, some, which was, was an agreement which was going to be very hard uh, to stick to make the North Koreans keep up to their side of the bargain, but also that the United States was going to find it very hard to keep its side of the bargain. Uh, the problem with the United States was that uh, Congress has never really liked this idea uh, of engaging with North Korea and being seen to, 
to submit to North Korean nuclear blackmail. So Congress pushed very hard to curtail some of the concessions uh, that the United States was making to North Korea in, in order to engage uh, North Korea, uh, blocked some of the financing for the light water reactors and so on, made it very difficult for the US to progress with, uh, with engagement. Likewise, on the North Korean side, uh, North Korea, uh, we now know uh, from the mid-1990s uh, onwards, had, according to US intelligence sources, had a second uh, nuclear program, secret nuclear program, based on uranium enrichment. So it looks like North Korea was cheating very early on uh, in its uh, agreement with the United States. The United States became very suspicious around the end of the 1990s uh, that North Korea was, was cheating. Uh, there was a process in the United States known as the Perry Process where former Secretary of Defense William Perry revisited, was appointed by Congress to revisit the whole of U.S. engagement strategy. Uh, it concluded that U.S. should continue to engage uh, with North Korea, but the United States should also keep the pressure uh, on North Korea at the same time. So a very balanced policy of carrots and sticks. At the end of the Clinton administration, it looked like we might have a, another breakthrough when Madeleine Albright, the then Secretary of State, went to North Korea and visited uh, Pyongyang, uh, and it looked like there may be a, 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 a new deal on nuclear uh, issues, but also on missiles, uh, where uh, North Korea is also a proliferator. However, of course, the Clinton administration um, came to an end, and the Bush administration came about. The Bush administration very early on made it clear that it didn't really want to deal with North Korea bilaterally. Um, it was ideologically opposed to the North Korean regime, uh, and it essentially it wasn't going to negotiate with North Korea uh, until it was satisfied that North Korea was keeping its side of, of the bargain. In 2001, we had the Axis of Evil speech, uh, which increased North Korea's paranoia about the fact that it was in some way a target of regime change, potentially. Uh, and we saw really a standoff uh, from 2001 to 2004 onwards between uh, the United States uh, and North Korea, and real, no, no progress in negotiations. Around 2004, we then saw a new effort uh, launched by the United States in con conjunction with, with China to try and engage North Korea in a multilateral talks process, a six-party talks involving the United States, uh, North Korea, South Korea, Japan, China and Russia uh, to try and come up with a new deal, or that's what the US go argument, uh, government argued anyway. Although, as we may come to later, there's suspicions about how much dealing was really going to be done in this six-party format. Uh, at the end of 2005, it looked like they had a deal. There, there seemed to be some kind of roadmap whereby North Korea would agree to, again, put a lid on its nuclear program, uh, and the United States seemed to be offering, although it didn't make it very explicit, seemed to be offering it a series of concessions further down the line. However, this agreement broke down at the end of 2005, again, for reasons we're not entirely sure of, um, partly because of, again, you know, could we trust North Korea, partly because of uh, maybe opposition within the top ranks of the, of the Bush administration. Uh, and then North Korea's reaction was to declare now that it had nuclear weapons and to raise the ante and the brinkmanship. Uh, and this year we've seen North Korea um, pushing very aggressively and provocatively uh, through missile testing uh, in July of this year. And of course now uh, we have the nuclear test. Dan, I mean, we've we've spoken in previous podcasts about the legal frameworks around mm. nuclear proliferation. Um, where does North Korea stand at the moment in terms of uh, international law? Well, they uh, they were members of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, but as Chris said, they they have now withdrawn from it a couple of years ago. Uh, so that was really the uh, the nuclear weapons framework, legal framework that uh, that that was in place. Uh, but now, since they have withdrawn from it, which is their right, 
there really is no uh, you know, substantive international law on uh, you know either their possession, development, or or even proliferation of nuclear weapons. Uh, the other program, as Chris was saying, uh, that is most concerned with regard to North Korea is their missile program, and uh, unfortunately, there there has never been concluded a uh, an international legal instrument, a treaty on missile technologies. So there is also no uh, international law, uh, whether treaty or custom, on the question of uh, missile development, possession, or proliferation. Mm -hmm. So North Korea is, is, is in something of a legal black hole. Uh, the other place where we would look to find international law on a security subject like this is the UN Security Council. Uh, say, as we talked about in the case of Iran, and, and certainly then in the case of Iraq, there was sort of a long history, much longer in the case of Iraq, of UN Security Council resolutions on the subject, which are binding uh, under Article 25 of the UN Charter. In North Korea's case, there are there are not yet binding Security Council resolutions on the substantive issues of their uh, weapons possession development. Uh, there have been presidential statements of the Security Council, there have been resolutions of the Security Council, but none of them yet have been uh, approved under Chapter 7 of the Charter, which makes them uh, binding compulsory, uh, specifically on the subject of their possession of nuclear weapons and, and sort of demanding that they denuclearize or, or, or something. But So now what we are seeing is the first inklings that that, that might start to happen. Uh, until now, uh, of course, one of the big reasons, well, two of the big reasons why there haven't been uh, Chapter 7 resolutions on this subject are China and Russia. And still, the, the, it's, it's unclear uh, to what extent they're going to go along with the Chapter 7 resolution now possibly uh, applying sanctions to North Korea or... Uh, demanding that they denuclearize. Uh, but you know, it, it does appear that China, at least, is starting to, to give some messages, uh, informal messages, that it, it might actually go along with some kind of a limited Chapter 7 resolution on, on, uh, on that subject. But you know exactly what they would agree to uh, is, is not yet clear. So we, we may be seeing in the next uh, few days, even, uh, a Chapter 7 resolution for the first time demanding uh, that North Korea take action with regard to its uh, nuclear weapons program. And they've started to circulate a draft at the UN, the, the U.S. draft at the United Nations, calls for what sounds a lot like a, a 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis quarantine on uh, North Korea, uh, on shipments of offensive weapons, to use the 1962 language, uh, going to, uh, to North Korea. The, you know, any technologies that could be used in its missile or, or nuclear programs, also financial sanctions. So this would be a very new sort of step for the Security Council to take, uh, a very active step for them to take to, to, to impose this sort of a, a quarantine on, uh, on uh, you know, you know dual-use and, and single-use weapons technologies going to North Korea. Uh, so if that were to happen, that would be sort of a new chapter in international law in North Korea. Chris, Dan raised the issue there that um, China is now looking more likely to back you in action addressing the uh, the situation in North Korea. China traditionally has been um, mm -hmm. one of the supporters of North Korea, right. and there's a sense in which that that relationship has been damaged by this right. test. Is that how how is this relationship currently under strain? Um, well, it's it's it's. I mean, it, it's it's under strain now, but in fact, <laughs> it's it's always been a very difficult relationship um, between China and North Korea. Um, 
you know, superficially it looks like they they should be they should be allies and good allies. You know, still one party states and so on, and they have a, a shared legacy of, of fighting together in the Korean War and, and so on. But actually, the North Koreans have never really liked the Chinese. Uh, you know, one of the one of the consistent features of North Korean foreign policy has been that they reject uh, domination by outside powers. Uh, and you know, China is it's not the worst of the outside powers, but it's another of the big dominant powers. So. Uh, the Chinese have never really trusted. Uh, so the North Koreans have never really trusted uh, the Chinese, uh, and vice versa. I think the Chinese have never really liked the North Koreans. I mean, North Korea has been a useful buffer state uh, for uh, North Korea during the Cold War, and it's been a way of ex of of, of uh, limiting U.S. influence on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, but at the same time, increasingly, the United uh, China has has seen uh, North Korea as something of a of a liability because obviously it's, it's, it's unstable internally and there's, there's a risk of collapse and, and, and refugee flows into, into North Korea. Clearly it agitates against the United States and Japan and it makes, it makes the United States focus very closely on, on Northeast Asia uh, in terms of security, which of course is not welcome mm. for, for China. Uh, and it also um, has excited uh, Japanese thinking uh, about its own military posture. And of course the last thing the Chinese want to see is, is a remilitarizing uh, Japan. So North Korea is in, in many ways a liability. So the North Koreans, are ex I think the Chinese are, are becoming extremely irritated uh, with the North Koreans. They've tried hard. Um, I mean, they have limited influence. We shouldn't over talk their influence. But nevertheless, they've tried hard through the six party talks process to nudge the North Koreans into talks um, with the United States. Uh, I think they tried very hard to keep a, to try and dissuade the North Koreans from this latest uh, nuclear test. So I think they're extremely irritated. Um, there has there have been rumours that the Chinese leadership have actually investigated in the past ways of intervening on the Korean Peninsula and overthrowing uh, Kim Jong Il's regime if things get really bad. But of course they've decided that's that's too difficult uh, and too dangerous. So I think um, they are very irritated with the North Koreans, and therefore, as Dan said, they are talking in a new way about some genuine action to try and deal with North Korea uh, this time. Um, if we look back in July at the missile tests, the Chinese were very reticent to really push too hard uh, to um, use the UN as a tool to constrain uh, North Korea. This time, they've clearly condemned the tests, uh, and they haven't really pronounced either way what is their what is their kind of preference. So, and I think they realise the international community pressure is building to do something about North Korea, and it's in their own interest. So, I think China is certainly going to see a lot more China a lot more forthcoming. Uh, in cooperating with the United States and Japan and other powers in, in the UN. But there's still a key question of how far China will go. For good or not, um, China does not want to precipitate regime collapse uh, in North Korea because the, the consequences are just too unknown uh, and too costly. And I think also China may be very reluctant to commit itself to a UN process which further down the line could commit it to some kind of military action even though of course China has a veto power mm. China would like to avoid having to use that that, that veto so uh, I wonder if we may get something where of course the US position is, is will, the US will hang out for the most extreme kinds of sanctions it can get supported by, by Japan uh, China will probably say yes we need some sanctions but maybe there will be something in between where there will be an intermediate stage of, of more pressure uh, on North Korea uh, but trying to uh, limit as much as possible what may happen further down the line and then come back to it and reconsider what can be done. What can be done? The UN, I suppose, is dealing here with a regime that's quite comfortable in seeing hundreds of thousands of its people suffer, whether that be through starvation or imprisonment or whatever. Would sanctions actually have any impact in North Korea? 
or would a military option actually be um, really the only uh, way to solve this issue? Well, I, th- I would say that military option is, is not on the table right now. I mean, it, it, it's, it's the problem is that uh, the states of the region are so uh, locked together in terms of their military independence that you know, a conflict on the Korean peninsula promises a, a larger conflagration. Uh, which could draw all the powers in. It's just it's too damaging. And also, I think you know, it's even something as limited as airstrikes is not possible because of the way that the uh, North Korean nuclear facilities are very well hidden underground. So, uh, limited strikes are not going to work, and they could just invite uh, a larger North Korean reaction, uh, where North Korea might threaten to basically flatten Seoul, or attack Japan, t- attack U.S. bases in Japan, even even uh, uh, threaten something against China in some way. And of course, now North Korea has this. Uh, although it's still somewhat down the line, nevertheless North Korea clearly has something nuclear uh, in its locker. So none of the states really want to contemplate military action at this stage. So I think we are talking about sanctions. Sanctions do have some, will have some effect on North Korea. I mean, North Korea is often portrayed as, as a very autarkic kind of economy, very isolated. This is true to a large extent. It's very resilient. And as you say, um, the North Korea, North Korea in the mid-1990s allowed possibly one or two million people of its, of its own people to starve. Uh, and this didn't undermine the regime. So it's very resilient to these kinds of economic shocks. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, sanctions, if targeted correctly, if targeted at the North Korean elite, uh, if targeted at some of the the North Korean military, could have some effect. Uh, And also I think one important uh, sanctions effort where the elite can be uh, influenced is is financial sanctions, uh, which may block North Korea's access to foreign currency so they can't buy certain kinds of weaponry uh, and certain kinds of, of commodities which support the economy and support the elite. Uh, and also energy is, is another area where North Korea is very, is very dependent on the outside world. Uh, and we saw um, in 2005, we saw China actually cut some energy supplies to North Korea in order to force North Korea back into the six-party talks, and that was quite effective. So sanctions will work, uh, but you have to be very careful how you use them. Uh, they're the kind of power that when you use them on North Korea, you've got to calibrate it very carefully to try and decide what kind of effect you want, because I think the last thing that any of the involved powers want is to precipitate regime change. It's too too expensive. So my feeling is, you know, military option is it's there, but it's way down the track, and it's not really going to be very feasible mm. unless you really want to face colossal costs. So sanctions may be, may be the way to go in order to try and cajole North Korea back into some kind of dialogue. Dan? The UN doesn't have a great history of imposing sanctions on uh, on regimes. Is the UN likely to be able to deliver a sanction framework that's going to make a difference? Sanctions is tricky business. Uh, I mean, and there are there are studies that are ongoing about the the effectiveness of sanctions. What kind of sanctions? Sanctions is a big word. As Chris was saying, there's limited and then sort of across the board sanctions. Like, uh, I mean, if you take uh, the Iraq case as an example. Uh, it, it appears that sanctions ended up being effective in Iraq over the long term in sort of choking their ability to pursue their weapons programs through the sorts of sanctions that Chris was talking about. I think, though, that sanctions are a sort, a sort of a long-term uh, effective instrument at best. I don't think that sanctions uh, tend to work uh, to produce a, a real effect in state behavior in the short term, and particularly if you have a regime that is ideologically motivated and therefore, in a sense, uh, I don't want to say irrational, but uh, of a different rationality. Uh, and and so I'm not very confident myself that sanctions are going to make much of a difference in the behavior of North Korea. Mm. I think that, as Chris was saying, that the, the real 
the real the, the power, powerful sanctions would only really come from from China, I think, and because they they really control the lifeline of North Korea, and uh, again they're going to be very reticent to use that because they they do not want Kristen saying to to uh, instigate a in, instigate a, a sort of a state failure on their doorstep. So I I, I don't see much of a future for um, the use of sanctions. I think as a sort of a symbolic gesture that we're likely to see that. That's probably exactly what's going to happen in the next few days. There will be a Chapter 7 resolution, if I were guessing, that China will probably go along with, imposing limited sanctions, the kind Chris is talking about, maybe setting up a, a quarantine zone around North Korea, although that's, that's going to be very tricky. But I, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not very optimistic that it's going to make much of a difference. I think that uh, in, in the North Korean case, as well as the Iranian case, if you sort of pull back a bit, We've had a lot of strong talk from uh, Western leaders, particularly the United States. You look at some of the rhetoric leading up to this, uh, how they'll rue the day and this sort of thing. A lot of strong talk, but not really you know, taking full account of, of what cards they have in their hand to play. And I think that you know, in some ways you can see both Iran and North Korea essentially calling the bluff of, of Western powers that have been saying, don't you dare, don't you dare. But now... Are, are in a position where they're sort of, they're left with, well, so what now? What do we do? And uh, I think both Iran and North Korea, so Iran's going to be watching North Korea closely here to see what happens now that the, here's another, a state that's really provoked uh, these these statements. And uh, they're both hoping that what happened in 1974 will happen now, mm-hmm. which was that India uh, tested a nuclear weapon. There was relatively brief uh, international uh, opprobrium uh, attached to it, but then eventually uh, the international community, uh, for for lack of any meaningful alternative, started working with them uh, and accepted them as a nuclear power. And lo and behold, now uh, thirty years later, the United States is signing uh, a nuclear energy bill with India. So things, you know, I'm not saying that India and North Korea are the same case. And this really gets more down to what was happening here. It's it, it, it sort of belies the idea that there's a principled framework under which we uh, assess to different states who should have who should be able to have nuclear weapons technology, who should not. It it, it clearly uh, is fact specific. In any event, I think Iran and North Korea are hoping that uh, uh, they'll be able to weather whatever uh, you know international uh, uh, <clears throat> no knowing that they they come up against and uh, and just be accepted. I mean, you, you talk there about the uh, this this rhetoric that the West has been uh, has has been talking um, over the last couple of years, and perhaps the axis of evil speech from uh, uh, President Bush is the most kind of famous example of that. Has that kind of rhetoric, Chris, put us in a more difficult position in terms of relationships with North Korea? Yeah, I think so. I think this is this has been. I, mean, I wouldn't say the, the the speech itself is clearly symbolic uh, of of a wider U.S. policy, and I, th- and I think this wider U.S. policy has has created has has really created the policy uh, the the real difficulty we're in we're in since the Bush administration. Um, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think you know the key thing is really to to understand what are the motivations for North Korea to acquire nuclear weapons. Um, I think up until uh, two thousand two thousand one. Uh, at the end of the Clinton administration, I think North Korea clearly it was interested in nuclear weapons as a as a uh, form of sort of ultimate security guarantee for itself. Mm. But I think the most important <clears throat> motivation, which went w- was actually just to use the nuclear card um, as uh, as bargaining bargaining leverage 
with the United States and the international community in order to secure a package of concessions, you know, very big concessions for the North Koreans. Um, but nevertheless, I think it, it, up until the up until the Bush administration, North Korea was really looking for the nuclear program as something that could be bargained away. Um, I mean, I think they saw it as great use. I think you can't really trust what the North Koreans are going to do. You have to watch them very carefully. But nevertheless, there was always that possibility that you could bargain the North Korean um, uh, nuclear program for something else. I think what happened around 2001 uh, with the Axis of Evil speech, I think this symbolised a change in the US position, whereby, or, or at least a perception of a change in the US position on the part of the North Koreans, whereby they felt that now... Uh, the United States wasn't willing to bargain uh, with North Korea, uh, that the United States was ideologically opposed to the existence of, of the North Korean regime, uh, and that uh, by placing North Korea in the axis of evil, then somewhere down the line, North Korea was a target for reg regime change. Now, whether that's true or not, it depends on you know who you talk to in the US administration, and US administration policy itself is quite confused on thinking about North Korea, but I think that is the perception of the North Koreans. So, there's been a change. Uh, I think the North Koreans have, have, have somewhat changed from seeing the nuclear program just as a bargaining chip, which is something that they can possibly give up if the deal is right, to now seeing it more as something which is essential for their regime survival as a security guarantee. Mm. Um, so that means it becomes harder for the North Koreans to give it up, and they need this in order to prevent anyone interfering uh, in their internal affairs. However, um, I don't know what Dan thinks, but I would, I would, I would think that there is still an opportunity here for the North Koreans to be persuaded to give up their nuclear program uh, if the deal is right. Uh, and of course, this is what it this is what a lot of dealing with North Korea hinges on. What do you think are, are North Korea's real motivations? Yeah. Is it it's not a regime which is ideologically opposed to the U.S., which hates the United States, hates the outside world, and therefore uh, has a, an obsession with requiring nuclear weapons? Or can it be a regime which can be dealt with, and you can ultimately there's a bargain that can be can be arranged whereby they may give up uh, their nuclear weapons? I think I'm still uh, in, of the second view that if the deal is right, that something can be bargained. Yeah. Dan, I mean, we're obviously then in a situation where you know we've got states like North Korea, Iran, um, the history with Pakistan and India, where states are pursuing nuclear uh, nuclear weapons in order to give them credibility on an international stage. If if the nuclear arsenal is what gives people credibility, then is Chris right? Can we persuade these nations to actually give up their arms? It really is a case by case uh, matter. You know, what, the different the security calculus that's faced by each of these states is very different. I mean, Iran faces a very different uh, sort of regional environment, security environment than does North Korea. Uh, I think Chris. I think Chris is right that if you compare the two, it probably it's probably more likely that you would be able to persuade North Korea or deal them out of their nuclear weapons than you could ever deal Iran out of its nuclear weapons. I think that it's a much more entrenched um, <clears throat> desire on the part of the Iranians, and it's much more about their own security as perhaps more rationally perceived than the, the North Korean uh, perception is. I think in, in the North Korean case, you might well be able to still make a deal if the United States offered security assurances, if they offered uh, some of the things they offered in 1994. You might be able to get them back uh, to the table and, and sign on to something. I think the real problem then is a matter of trust. Could you ever trust or would the United States 
ever trust North Korea to actually follow through on what it says. And I think that their their credibility right now is is awfully low because they have now Chris in sort of chronology talking about there have been deals in the past, uh, even more recent than 1994, and statements from North Korea have ended up being. Uh, not very trustworthy as to what they were planning to, what they ended up doing. So I think it uh, that that would that would be a problem there. Well, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, again, I would agree. I mean, just as a sort of maybe it's a debating point, but uh, we also need to know whether we can trust the United States. I mean, I think you know the, the U.S. didn't keep to its side of the bargain in the 1990s, not not necessarily because of the the good intentions of the Clinton administration, but because domestic opinion wasn't going to wear uh, this 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 bargain. So. Uh, there's a question. It's not just the North Koreans which have let down, uh, let down the international community. I think it's the U.S. as, as its position as a hegemon, uh, which is supposed to take responsibility for solving these kind of problems. The U.S. hasn't really um, had a consistent line or f- remained fully engaged uh, in dealing with the North Korean uh, issue. So, let's not just blame the North Koreans. Um, can we trust the North Koreans? No, I mean I don't. I would argue we, we shouldn't. Tr- we shouldn't. We shouldn't trust the North Koreans so much. I mean, we we have to watch them very, very carefully, and we have to maintain this this careful balance of carrots and sticks, and make it very clear to the to the North Koreans there is a stick, uh, which will be used uh, if uh, the situation gets bad enough. Um, but I think you know, it's it's not really so much about trust. It's about getting some kind of process going. Uh, and this is, for me, what was important more about the, the agreed framework of, of 1994, 1995 was not that the North Koreans were necessarily going to keep always to their side of the bargain, but then we had a process uh, of engagement. Uh, there was a process of give and take of negotiation, constant contacts. And you're beginning to enmesh North Korea in different layers of, of contacts with, it, with, with other bilateral contacts in the region, uh, with uh, trying to coax it out of its economic isolation to help it reform its economy. Uh, and you couldn't trust North Korea all the time, but increasingly it would become progressively more and more difficult for the regime uh, to play these kinds of games because it, it was more and more at stake in terms of its links with the, mm. the outside world. And I think you know, the problem is that not just the United States, but also say, you know, Japan uh, also didn't really, couldn't re- didn't really have the policy energy or the concentration to sort of keep going at this very mm. tough task of North Korea. And often, I think problems of face got in the way. I mean, it was very much a case of, you know, the North Koreans have, have betrayed us, they're provocative, we're not going to play that game, you know, we're going to walk away. And then, of course, the North Koreans just do more of this, mm. and then uh, no no real, there's no process, no rational, consistent policy uh, formed towards North Korea. Mm. So I would say, you know, trust, you know, we've got to, we've got to what you know, can we... If we're going to get a deal, then we've got, we've got to make sure the international community can stick to it and also get the United States to stick to it as well. Uh, we don't necessarily have to trust the North Koreans. We have to watch them very, very carefully. But we need a process of engagement. We need to talk to them. It's no good just saying, you know, they're irrational or you know, we can't trust them. Let's not get a deal because th- we are, look where we are now. I mean, this it hasn't helped. That kind of approach has actually just added momentum to, to North Korea's mm. uh, nuclear program and led it completely out of the box. Yeah, I suppose, I mean, the current situation is very likely to focus the minds of their near neighbours. What, what, what do you think, Chris, the impact of the current situation is likely to be on regional stability? Um, well, well, we'll see. I mean, clearly, you know, we just had the test, so there are all kinds of very um, doom-laden warnings going around about, about how this may have a kind of domino effect uh, on uh, nuclear proliferation in the region. And I think you know, this is this is um, uh, possible. I mean, this is the worst case scenario. We need, do need to focus our minds very much on that. But again, we need to at the same time we need to sort of take a, a deep breath and think coolly about this. Um, 
there's still time. I mean, North Korea has demonstrated that it's got some potential nuclear capability, but it hasn't demonstrated the ability to really weaponize this and to deliver this system effectively. Uh, some people say that the test may have even failed to some extent. So there's still time to to uh, to to divert North Korea from this from this uh, track. So there's there's still time for negotiations. I also think that most of the involved powers are going to be very restrained. And in particular, I'm thinking about Japan. Of course, the concern is that if that Japan will feel very nervous if it's threatened by a nuclear North Korea, and if the United States doesn't look implacable and tough in dealing with North Korea, then the Japanese may need to rethink their own uh, self-imposed ban on the acquisition of nuclear weapons. But I think the Japanese have been pretty cool-headed so far. They've reaffirmed the fact that they're not interested in uh, acquiring nuclear weapons. Uh, and I think their, their response will be much more to work on the sanctions, to work on dialogue, uh, and to work on other ways of trying to negate North Korea's nuclear capabilities through building up missile defences, uh, or even through acquiring some kind of limited strike capability uh, against North Korea's uh, nuclear, uh, nuclear or missile facilities. So still, you know, we're a long way from these kind of rather doom-laden uh, predictions that some people are coming out with. Mm. Dan, where do we go from here? I mean, what do we see as the short and long-term possible outcomes uh, for the current situation? Short term, uh, as I said, I think that we're going to see probably a Chapter 7 resolution in the next few days. Uh, I think it will be limited because, as we've talked about, China's not going to want to push uh, too hard. Uh, it's a much bigger problem for them than for anyone else. They're right on their doorstep. They don't want to push them too hard, both because of the failing state model and also because you don't want to push someone like Kim Jong-il into a box. If he feels defensive, now he has the not so much the nuclear weapons, but he's always had missile and probably chemical-tipped uh, uh, you know, warheads to, to do lots of terrible things to Seoul, which is only 30 miles away. So I think that it's going to be limited. It's going to be mostly for show. Uh, I doubt that this quarantine thing is going to go very far. I think that would be very tricky to maintain. I really, I hope that they don't go that way, uh, because I don't think it's really going to be very useful, and it, and it has the possible, you know, the potential to, to to be sort of a powder keg that could could go off badly. Uh, looking farther into the future, uh, I, I hear what Chris is saying about uh, you know engagement and having a process, and the idea of enmeshing North Korea, but I think that that does assume. Uh, a sort of a baseline of, of rationality in the leaders of a state to respond to enmeshment uh, and and to be sort of globalized in that sense. And I think, that, but I think if you have an ideologically driven or possibly sociopathic, I mean, we can't. I don't know that, but it is possible to, that uh, Kim Jong Il really is uh, paranoid, sociopathic uh, in, in in his perception of what the the rest of the world is doing. It just seems to be groundless. And so, if you have someone with that uh, that that psychology, it, you can't assume that the uh, the sort of the globalization and enmeshment processes that work with other states are going to work with North Korea. They pulled out of the NPT. That was a big step. That not no other state, to my knowledge, has pulled out of the NPT. I, I, that's off the top of my head. I could be wrong. But I, that was a big step, uh, and it showed an open defiance uh, of the international community uh, and, and really not caring what anyone thought. So I, I don't think we're dealing here with uh, an actor that we, we can necessarily think will be processed and enmeshed into becoming a, a responsible member of the international community. And it is possible that we're dealing with uh, a, a rogue state in the, in the, in the best sense it, that, that cannot be controlled by traditional models of deterrence and containment and that uh, eventually, 
uh, and this also in some senses goes for Iran, and this is the final point is that we're going to have to accept that North Korea is going to be a nuclear power. So is Iran, eventually. Uh, proliferation studies uh, at its heart knows that everything that we do, all of the international legal means, all of the diplomacy, is, is only a stopgap. It, it is only postponing the inevitable, which is the spread of nuclear weapons technologies to anyone who really wants them bad enough. And so with that as the ultimate reality... Uh, I think the the West has to start structuring its policies a bit better to prepare for that eventuality. And so to stop the sort of the hard rhetoric without cards to back it up, that in the end undermines the credibility of those diplomatic uh, communications and sets up this uh, unnecessarily antithetical uh, relationship. I mean, we don't have to be uh, snuggly buddies with all these countries, but... Uh, we can take a, a more prudent policy which understands that, again, at the end of the day, we, ju we cannot keep them from going nuclear. We cannot keep these technologies from them forever. It's good to postpone, yes. We should keep doing what we're doing with the treaties and the regimes and, and try to keep them postponed, but eventually it's going to happen, and therefore the policy should reflect that eventual reality and be such that when it does happen, we can live with each other. Dan, Chris, thank you very much. Okay.